Hi, this is Gary Sheffer. We've got another terrific guest this week on the crux of the story. That's our full name. I, I usually just say crux, but it's the crux of the story because we get at the heart of what's going on in public relations. And this week, someone helping us to do that is Jim O'Leary, who's the U.S. Chief Operating Officer over at Edelman. He's got a bunch of other titles, too, which we explain or he explains in the interview. But we really talk about the future of corporate communications based on a really interesting study that Edelman did recently and its findings, one of which is that while communications responsibilities are growing, resources haven't always followed that. Isn't that a story that we all know? But Jim really describes it well and what's going on and what needs to be done to close that gap. So let's go to that interview, Mike Fernandez, myself with Jim O'Leary of Edelman. Welcome to The Crux. Each week, two of the world's top communicators take you behind the scenes of the news of the day to explore the crux of communications that are shaping business, politics, and our daily lives. Hi, this is Gary Sheffer. And hi, I'm Mike Fernandez, and we're glad to be with you from Boston University. Today on The Crux, our guest is Jim O'Leary, the Chief Operating Officer and Corporate Affairs Practice Chair, as well as the Chief Impact Officer at Edelman. In his role, Jim advises CEOs and Fortune 500 executives on how to navigate complex business, geopolitical, and strategic communication challenges. Jim has almost two decades of experience working with organizations to enable enterprise transformation, recover in the wake of crises, and drive revenue growth. Jim oversees a global network of corporate reputation, business marketing, and advisory services teams across more than 60 offices. I won't go through naming all of his clients, but as you can imagine, they are some of the biggest and most important companies in the world. Jim writes and speaks frequently on PR topics, and we're delighted to have him with us today to discuss a report from Edelman that came out, I believe, in September of 2021, The Future of Corporate Communications. Jim, welcome to The Crux. Hello, gentlemen. Thanks for having me. So I, I gotta have to start with this, your titles, <laughs> and at, most specifically, Chief Impact Officer, which Sounds like you know you're at GM and doing bumper <laughs> testing or something. What what's the what, what does a chief impact officer do at an agency like Edelman, Jim? Right. Well, and you know, I think chief impact officer is maybe even a little more fancy than than my actual title on that front, <laughs> which is I'm, so I'm essentially our our global lead for impact and ESG. Okay. And that you know, I think probably sounds a little less grand and a little more straightforward, which. You know, when we talk about that here, impact and ESG, we talk about sustainability, we talk about social impact, we talk about brand purpose, and then we talk about ESG, both 
the the more narrow and traditional definition of, of ESG that's kind of more capital markets focused, yep. as well as, you know, what I think is now becoming a catch-all for a, a lot of the things I previously mentioned, which is, you know, the, the fact that ESG, as it becomes more materially important across the C-suite and elsewhere, is, is almost becoming a phrase that the rest of the things that I mentioned kind of fall underneath. Yeah, yeah. And, and let me just push this a little bit more on, on that. I'm interested... So as you work with the multinationals, your clients on uh, on this topic, are you seeing increasingly CCOs involved in either as essential partners or that or in leading ESG and impact issues for these companies? Absolutely. And the answer is both. So um, at some organizations, more so now probably than than before, CCOs certainly have some, if not, you know, in some instances, all of the responsibility around those areas. At the same time, in some organizations where you might actually have someone who is a chief impact officer or, or, or you know, a head of ESG or head of sustainability, all of which, you know, we have clients with, with versions of those titles, communications will either, you know, be a key partner to those functions, or in some instances, those functions will sit within communications. Mm-hmm. Interesting. You know, we... I still have students here at Boston University ask me about whether communications has a seat at the table. And I say, yes. And I say, we've got about six or seven now. Right. <laughs> you know, it's just, it's a, and it's part of the report we're going to talk about is that you identify that phenomenon. I, I want to, before we go into the that report, I want to talk about a couple programs you launched at Edelman recently. One is, is Edelman's business transformation line. And more recently, you launched Edelman's Behavioral Science for Business in Partnership with some researchers from Harvard Business School. That's cool. So tell us about these programs and partnerships. I'm particularly interested, Jim, in the work with HBS on behavioral science. Yeah, absolutely. And so, you know, one of the best parts of my job is that I get to to build and, and launch new business units and capabilities. And so, you know, over the past several years, we've we've been reimagining corporate affairs here, and we have reimagined it in large part based on you know where we think the the, the industry is headed. And so, initially, business transformation was an area that we saw as a large untapped opportunity for us, given all of the challenges that our clients were dealing with in this space. Mm -hmm. And so you probably have seen the data from the management consulting firms. The summary is that nine out of 10 companies are in some form of of business transformation right now. And 80% of those transformations fail. Wow. Right. And so they fail. And this is where it gets, this is where the research, again, this is management consulting firm research. This is not even our research. They, They fail because companies oftentimes prioritize and focus on the vision for the transformation, the strategy, maybe even, you know, the restructuring and the process by which to transform. But in doing so, they overlook one of the key things that enables transformation success, and that's people, which of course is where we come in as as communications professionals. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, over the years, I've I've helped a number of of organizations go through large-scale merger integrations or demergers or spinoffs. And in doing so, it became clear to us that a specialized team focused on these types of transformations, much in the same way that, you know, within Edelman, we have specialized teams that do transaction work. We have specialized teams that do a number of things. 
that our clients would benefit from having a, a team that focuses exclusively on these types of transformations. Right. So we built the business several years ago. It is one of the fastest growing parts of our firm. This year alone, it's it's nearly expected to double in scale wow. as we help companies, you know, navigate this trickiness. And I couldn't be, you know, prouder of it. The interesting thing about your question around behavioral science is that um, the the behavioral science capability that we built here, behavioral science for business, was originally born out of and within the business transformation unit by a, a woman, actually, her name's Felicia Joy, who we hired to be one of our business transformation leaders in Chicago after yeah. she got after she she came out of Harvard. Wow. And she, you know, she felt very strongly and rightfully that in order to be able to demonstrate the impact that we were making from a business perspective in service of many of these transformation assignments, that we should both be able to design what in, in you know, the behavioral science or behavioral economic space they call behavioral interventions. And then after doing so to measure the impact of those interventions on, on the business beyond just communications metrics. And so she pitched me on this idea. I thought it was a great one. A, a group of us, you know, went to Harvard, we had a series of discussions mm-hmm. and ultimately ended up partnering with Harvard, a, a woman there named Ashley Willens, who has since actually written a quite famous book. And then, you know, we br- started to bring this, build this capability into a lot of the assignments that we were doing for our clients. Mm-hmm. And it's been, a, it's been really um, fun and exciting work along the way. I'm really proud of it. Terrific. Well, one of the things that's interesting about that to me is that you know, we've heard talk in the past about nudge theory. We've heard other firms looking at behavioral science, but the way you've kind of linked it to change management and transformation, I think is unique. Was that in part because some of the consulting firms themselves who tried to fill a communications void in this space were somewhat unsuccessful or not well-tooled that that created this opening? Yeah, that's absolutely right. And so because of what they have traditionally focused on, many of the management consulting firms that lead some of the largest transformations or help companies, you know, go through some of the largest transformations, they they themselves recognize that their offers were incomplete without the people dimension being much more deliberately addressed. Mm-hmm. And the as you mentioned, you know, at the time with Thaler and Nudge, and then subsequent to that, an, an increased focus more broadly on, you know, either behavioral science or behavioral economics, depending on which school you're from, and, and the impact that it could actually have on business, we thought it would be a nice way to complement the other three things that we primarily do in service of transformation. And I'll tell you what those three are. They won't be a surprise to either of you gentlemen. You probably mm. have done much of this in, in helping the companies that you were head of comms for or are head of comms for navigate transformations. The first is... um is the work that almost always accompanies a transformation around valuation. And, you know, and for us, this equates to, a, you know, financial communications or, or, or corporate reputation, corporate communications work, which is key to many transformations, especially those that are tied to a transaction, most of which are in some way, um, shape or form. The second, th- the second thing is the culture transformation piece, which is the, the employee focused element. And as we'll talk about momentarily, you know, the, the role of employees the increased focus on employees that we saw during the pandemic and even leading up to it certainly isn't going anywhere. Mm-hmm. And the role that communications can play in, in shaping culture. And then the last is is, um, is brand transformation. And you know, typically when, when an organization is going through a, a large scale 
you know, portfolio realignment, for lack of a better term, it it will require work across all three of those areas. And then, you know, we, of course, underpin that with, as we were talking about, some of the behavioral science capability and, and allows us to bring something to the table that is quite unique in, in comparison to the management consulting firms that you guys referenced. Yeah, that's great. So, so let's pivot a bit to the the future of corporate communications, the, the report that Edelman put out in the fall. Now, that's a pretty broad topic. Can you share with our listeners some of the top findings from the study? Yeah, absolutely. So the headline of our research is this. The role of communications has become more materially important to CEOs, boards, and the C-suite. And the reason for this of, of which there are many, but I think the, the fundamental reason ties back to, to some of what we've discussed, and I'm sure we'll discuss a little bit more, which is that the companies that we work with, our clients, and those who lead them, you know, the CEOs and, and, and those who support the CEOs, they're in many instances dealing with a more complex environment than at any time in recent memory, right? This is, this is for the obvious reasons. In the past couple of years, it's navigating COVID, it's, you know, navigating um, social and racial justice issues, geopolitical instability, both abroad, you know, see the Ukraine and Russia at home, as evidenced by, I guess, you know, you could talk about the issues around the U.S. election. Then you combine that with what we're all experiencing right now, call it the Great Reset. Some people call it the Great Resignation. They're on top of that looming climate mm-hmm. crisis, yeah. <laughs> you know, any number of issues. And, and you have an environment that is highly complex. And it's not to say that, of course, this, you know, CEOs and boards haven't um, always dealt with complex environments because, of course, they have. It's just that in addition to, you know, navigating supply chain issues or, you know, macroeconomic conditions, inflation, right, mm-hmm. and everything else, there are now a new set of things that also need to be navigated simultaneously. Sure. And those things are, as things that I've mentioned, those, those things are oftentimes things that um, communications plays a, a direct role in helping um, CEOs and, and, right, and other leaders navigate. Um, and so, you know, whether it's, um, it's an increased focus on ESG and as we talked about the role that communications plays in, in navigating that. Yeah. So, 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 I mean, what's fascinating to me is that it, it seems as though the report indicates that communicators are now not just communicating, they're, they're managing larger relationships than before. And I think one of the findings that I found in, intriguing, if not disappointing, was that while we have communicators seemingly being more valued and more listened to by senior executives, CEOs, and boards, it seems as though it's difficult to fund the function, even as the function and its expertise is valued more. What does it take to kind of right-size the funding? And and I say that because it's it's almost humorous, because we tend to use the term right-sizing in terms of reducing, but it sounds like the remit has enlarged, but maybe the budgets haven't. I think that is indeed true, unfortunately, and I'm hopeful that that will correct in time. You know, when I think about 
the increased responsibility now placed on communications and the fact that, you know, there has not been a commiserate or corresponding increase in, in funding for it. You know, we've often asked the question, why? Mm-hmm. And we've also Great. looked at some other functions that have gone through their own kind of like functional transformation. I think you know, one one that would be is interesting to look at is HR, for example, right? Where as back back in the day, many of us experienced HR as like the, the benefits function, and and you know, I think you could argue that over the past couple decades, certainly last decade, you know, HR often is, is now you know ascended to be much more of a strategic business partner with more funding. And you could argue the same for probably some of the other functions. I think one of the ways that um, most have done so is both with access to more and better data, and then the ability to to use that data to to prove and deliver some type of business impact or ROI. And so this ties back actually to one of the findings in the research. And I'll give you guys kind of the, the, a couple more specific headlines from the research, and then I'll and then I'll tie it back to this one right here because this one's related to comms tech. So give or take five key findings from the research. First and foremost, we increasingly believe that comms tech, which is a uh, complicated way of, <laughs> of talking about right, using uh, digital tools and then technology mm-hmm. and, and data in ways that previously just wasn't possible, but to do much of what we've always done in communications, right? Comms tech is going to likely... And I already am starting to see this. It's somewhat ushering in a new era, much like digital did, oh, I don't know what, 15 years ago. And I think it's in part to address or get to, Mike, what you were talking about or, or question, asking a question around, which is um, people are increasingly seeing ComSec as, as a method or as a way to be able to quantitatively demonstrate the value of communications and then use that quantifiable demonstration of value to ask for more funding, to ask for more money, to deliver more value. And, and we all know that that used to be quite difficult, certainly not impossible, but it was more, it was more difficult than it is today, <laughs> thanks to ComsTech. And the research that we did, when we looked at what people were spending on, what they were investing in, ComsTech was at the top of that list. And I think 70% of the people that we talked to mm-hmm. report ComsTech as, as one of the top areas of investment for the coming year. A few other areas that are top areas of of investment or focus for the coming year. One is employee experience and employee engagement and um, employee communications. Again, no surprise given the fact that throughout the pandemic and, you know, now as we hopefully enter more of an endemic state or exist in a more endemic state, there has been an increased focus, a, a notable increased focus on workplace issues, workforce health and safety and just well-being of employees and the need to engage them. And I think almost, you know, roughly just under two thirds of the people that we spoke to put um, employee communications, again, near the top of the list of investments. Another area that is going to be no surprise that is an area of focus and investment is the expectations around corporations to engage on social issues. And the fact that this is being driven in large part, you know, by increased by the fact that companies are being held more accountable by any number of stakeholders. And I, I love the Disney example right now. I'm sure you guys have been following this closely, but, I, you know, it's interesting for me because it, it has so many dimensions that keep playing out. And, you know, like many of the recent examples, it was initially an employee activist or activism situation, right, where the, the employees 
were, were disappointed with what the company was doing and spoke out. And then that quickly, you know, led to consumers, right, ex expressing similar perspective in many instances to those employees, not always. And then once that happened, then, you know, the, the, the political scene in Florida <laughs> has, has now um, embraced what's going on with Disney in one way or another, oftentimes to advance a political agenda. And so now, you know, all of these stakeholders and, and you know, it's not like they're in some way um, siloed, they're all interconnected, interdependent, but, you know, Disney has found itself in a bit of a tricky situation. And it's not a, a situation that is that others haven't experienced in the past several years, right? It's actually an increasingly common situation. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, we still don't know what's going to happen from a, a long-term business impact perspective. Yeah, it's a great, it's a great case study for, for everyone in this, in this business. Hey, I, you know, I'm a terrible host. I, I, I should have asked you, so how did you reach all these findings uh, at the beginning? What, what did you guys do? You talked to a bunch of folks in the communications profession, I'm sure, right? We, we did what we believe to be one of the, the most comprehensive scans of heads of communications across the world in recent years. Yeah. We spoke to either, you know, directly or via survey, over 150 of them across, you know, a, a number of countries, call it a 75% North America, the rest outside of the U.S., and um, all senior communications executives, either, you know, heads of communications or, or, or close to it if they were at larger organizations. The sample included, you know, both Fortune 500 or their equivalent outside the U.S., as well as some uh, less large but still, you know, sizable communications um, teams. And we looked at a number of things, right? We looked at the trends, some of which I'm already talking about. We looked at other things that, you know, can be found you know, buried in the, the depths of the research, but are oftentimes some of the more interesting things to people around, you know, what type of organizational structures are, are trending these days. And we looked at, um, you know, where people are, are investing in terms of time and, and money and effort. So it was really, um, it was really exciting research to do. And uh, we're already talking about um, what we're going to be doing next year to uh, build on the benchmark. This episode and other episodes of The Crux are made possible by Boston University's College of Communication, or COM as it's known. COM is BU's home for the study of advertising, emerging media, film and television, journalism, media sciences, and public relations. At COM, we seek to build understanding among people through better communication. Find out more at www.bu.edu forward slash com. Well, that's what I'm going to, uh, Jim, here, switch questions with you because I'm interested in one of the findings that I sort of skipped over in reading the report. And it's one that a lot of CCOs and their teams spend a lot of time on and maybe don't it's not as productive as they wanted it to be, which is the organizational structure that uh, addresses both their industry and the environment. You, you, One of the findings here is a modern organizational structure only gets you so far. What does that mean? Right. Well, so I think that, you know, when we get asked about organizational structure <laughs> by our clients, the, uh, people are oftentimes hoping that, you know, the be, uh, a new and improved org is like the silver bullet for whatever problem they're dealing with. 
and you gentlemen certainly know, having probably done, you know, as a number of reorgs throughout your career, <laughs> that unfortunately it only gets you so far. It's not true. So when we um when we did our research and we we looked into the types of organizational structures were most prevalent, what we found is that 43% of large communications teams are now increasingly centralized. We found that 31% are decentralized. And this compares to 26% that are matrixed. And there's not an answer. uh, I don't believe that there's an answer as to, you know, which is best that is one size fits all. I think there's a lot of, um, of reasons why people increasingly are arguing for more centralized structure. I'm a big fan of a centralized structure. There are also some companies in, in certain sectors, you know, oftentimes maybe B2B is an example where a decentralized structure is argued for favorably given what it does in terms of putting uh, resources and, and attention closer to some of the, um, the commercial teams. Totally. But, um, yeah, exactly. You know, we actually very much try to avoid, you know, proclaiming one structure better than another because it really does depend. Yeah. So and it's interesting in this discussion because every time I get into a discussion with teams that I've managed in terms of dealing with organization. Organization almost seems like the easy, quick fix that maybe isn't such a quick fix after all, and that sometimes you need to spend a little bit more time thinking about other areas that clearly impact the organization, like actual processes and ways of work and who you're working with and and how best to work with them. But changing gears a bit, you've done quite a bit of writing and, and, and analysis and study in this whole field of the fact that the world we're engaged in is changing and that in many ways is changing the role for communicators. You wrote not too long ago in Forbes, to help navigate a complex environment, CEOs are increasingly turning to communications leaders as they work to address a litany of pressing challenges ranging from returning to the workplace, the growing war for talent, to supply chain stressors, rising inflation, and expanded focus on ESG and a looming climate crisis. So, You're essentially saying that senior executives, CEOs, are increasingly turning to their top communicators for advice. Beyond the specific issues or challenges that I went to, what what is it about communicators that you think other executives cannot achieve in these moments of change and, and what's kind of precipitating the leaning in on their advice? Yeah, it's a great question. I feel like there's an increased acceptance among even, you know, former skeptics. You know, I, I, I hesitate to use the term stakeholder capitalism in, in, a, in the rising importance of a, a multi-stakeholder world. How about that? And, you know, maybe there are even people on this call who, who may have been skeptical of, in the past about some of this. But, you know, increasingly, I find skepticism decreasing or waning, given what's happening in the world. And, you know, as communications professionals, like we have spent much of our career 
focused on navigating the complexity or helping our organizations and leaders navigate the, the complexity between business and society or, you know, business and p- policy. And so we probably, along with, you know, some of the other functional leaders in places like, you know, government relations and, and marketing in the context of the customer, we probably spend a disproportionate amount of time trying to determine what the stakeholders that our organizations interact with or thinking or yeah, exactly or towards us. And with an increased importance in both understanding the expectations of those stakeholders, right, to advance a, a business agenda or a, 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 an agenda at the intersection of business and society, we were being increasingly turned to, to advise in those areas. And, you know, even at like a more simple level, ESG, some instance, some organizations have prioritized maybe the G over the S, right? Or the the G at first and then increasingly the E and and now the S. And, you know, we as communications professionals have have oftentimes been very focused on the S and the fact that S is just that much more important now, I think means that the advice we can give around the S is, is taken that much more seriously now. Yeah. And it's, you know, it's often because I always say this, Jim and Mike, which is other than the CEO, who has a broader view of the world and our place in it, our company's place in it than the communicator. Right. Right. And that brings E, S and G together. I mean, that's our job in, in a lot of ways is to bring all of that internal and external perspective to to the company and uh, company's attention and to try to put it together. I'm going to jump Jim, to a question about both E and S, I guess, right. and, and maybe even G. And, and so last week on The Crux, we had the creative director of Clean Creatives. Uh, and this is a group of folks in the industry, PR, advertising, et cetera, who have called on agencies, other agencies, to end t- ties with oil and gas groups. And according to the group's founder, Duncan Mizell, who was on our program, that they believe to end their ties with uh, companies that are misleading and disingenuous when it comes to claims about energy and climate. So you all have encountered this group at Edelman, and and you conducted a 60-day review based on some of the work that Clean Creatives did and others, not just Clean Creatives. So how did that turn out and, and where do you guys see yourselves going as far as work related to climate? Yeah, well, we've hired, we brought in a new climate chair. His name's um, Robert Casamento. And we have, as you mentioned, we've gone through a portfolio review and have you know set forth a new policy and actions. We're developing, we call trusted transitions, mm-hmm. where we guide both our own organization as well as committed clients to action and and transformation in this space. You probably have seen like our own trust barometer data, right? Shows that more than 50% of people don't trust climate communications. And and we think that we can help drive change through more trusted engagement around that. We're also working with Systemic. You probably are familiar with them. Renowned climate systems change company to further develop trusted transitions means here. And um, we, we are finalizing an independent council of climate experts from outside the organization, outside the company, to provide input and guidance on our strategy. Terrific. So, um, you know, a, a lot happening on this front, and I'm sure we'll be able to, you know, we'll get into even more detail with you in, in the future. 
Yeah, thinking a little bit more more broadly, I mean, Edelman advises uh, a number of large multinational companies. And, and in that, you know, we've talked today about ESG, about societal change, a little bit on vision and values and kind of the underpinning on, on how companies are, are, are trying to assess the value of communicators. But the flip side of that, how is this reshaping how you advise clients? You know, how are you coaching clients about the new values and societal business norms? Right. Well, that uh, there's uh, that's a very there's gonna be a long answer to that. To that very question. Um, okay, it's a podcast, Jim. Come on. No, you know. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, any. Okay. So I, I think that there are any there are a, a number of uh, ways that we're helping companies navigate this reality. You know, they can range from helping companies. N- think about or prepare for or, you know, create frameworks around how to uh, engage or not engage around social issues, Yeah, which is a very common one, to helping brands on the marketing side both be and then market more purposefully. And then certainly, and this is increasingly common, helping even boards as they try to determine both their strategy in addition to just the companies reporting around ESG. Those are all areas where we are, you know, increasingly helping our clients, you know, navigate um, any number of issues. Beyond that, I think certainly there has always been in their own and there continues to be even more work around sustainability strategy, sustainability communications. And um, I think, you know, even within the, the, the broad definition of ESG, we're increasingly helping our clients work through DEI issues. Right. You know, and the fact that I, I think you know, more companies than not probably see DEI as um, kind of falling within the broader yeah, ESG so. umbrella now. Interesting. How, how, do you, how do you help them to make sure that they don't overstate the case? I mean, part of the challenge, I think, is companies begin to see the challenges in the world, feel the the pressure from outside groups and their own employees. There's got to be in some organizations an inkling, well, if we just say it, and, 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 you know, and, and, and somebody once told me long ago that, you know, you actually have to do these things. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, and, you know, I do think that there was a time where people – there were, first of all, there was a time where, you know, many organizations, as you guys well know, just would try to duck and cover or, yeah. you know, <laughs> stay out of it. Right. And then, and then it, there was a shift just taking a, a position, a formal position on issues and oftentimes making commitments. And then, as you point out, the companies, you know, were starting to be called out when they were not necessarily actually taking action against either the, the commitments or the issues. And so, you know, that's the, that's the, I think, yeah. the world that we live in now. And I believe that it is a good thing for communications. I think it's a good thing yeah. for corporations and it's a good thing for communications. So yeah. certainly an opportunity for us to continue to, you know, provide value. Yeah. Yeah. We just need to make sure that rather than just telling a better story, we have a better story to tell. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and as, and as, you got, I'm sorry, go ahead. Well, go. I was going to say, Jim, here that you guys have been telling, talking to people about this for a long time as well. I, you know, we were reminiscing before we started the recorder and about eco-imagination, 
which you know we started putting together with with Edelman at GE 18 19 years ago. Yeah, it was a great program. We, we launched that we launched that in 2005 and it really was focused on climate at the time and not only did we vow to in, improve our products but we took a position which I think was actually the we took a position on energy policy in the US and globally and it was all about action and and Edelman gave us some great advice on that at the time and we we were reporting annually on emissions and other things that we were doing and so to Mike's point about demonstrating that you know pledges were nice and the ads were nice and all of that but actually doing things was the key yeah, well, I appreciate the the kind words about Edelman. Certainly, we love doing all the work with um, you guys at GE and certain imagination. I mean, you were such an, an early, a first mover, I think, in, in many ways with eco-imagination. You know, work that even, as you point out, almost two decades later, still... Oh, my goodness. You know, I, I think it's still hand, still held in such high esteem. <laughs> Gary was 13. That's, that, that's what we're doing. Unbelievable. You know, in this business, there are certain sort of seminal cases of people refer to Tylenol and that kind of thing, which they should because they were great yeah. work. So I try not to talk about eco-imagination, you know, because it's, it's almost <laughs> 20 years ago now. It's really remarkable. Yeah. Um, and but, I, I'm proud of that, though. But, I, but, you know, Gary, the fact that you were able to do that work in, especially in the context of what GE had been through not that long before. Yes, the, exactly. The eco-imagination with what was going on in the Hudson River and everything. Yep. And, I, and I think, you know, it probably is one of those examples where, you know, there's like universal acceptance of, of the impact it was able to make. I mean, I certainly felt so. I feel so. And yes. so, you know, there it's it's still to this day um, work that we're certainly very proud of you have been. Yeah. Part of. I, I want to turn lastly to one last question here, Jim, and, and it's a, a topic that I'm really interested in and is disinformation and misinformation. The editor of The Atlantic wrote recently that it, that is the issue of our time. Mm. And I, I, you know, uh, you could you could argue with that, but he's not far from wrong if he's wrong. And last year, you guys launched at Edelman what you're calling the disinformation shield. A Rolling Stone, of all things, reported on it, describing it as an artificial. Did did, did Jim get on the cover? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, the last did not make the cover. Oh, 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 gee. Though the uh, fact that I was quoted in that article was was quite amusing to my wife. <laughs> well, let me. So here's what they said: It's an artificial intelligence, real time media monitoring of the open and dark webs, and social psychology to track, identify, and diffuse the next viral meme or hideous conspiracy theory that brings a major corporation to its knees. Sounds like a Netflix series, you know, the like the you know the trailer for a next Netflix series on some dark web thing. So what is it? And, yeah. and, and, you know, how do you apply it with clients? Yeah, absolutely. And Gary, that's the beauty of, you know, getting a story in Rolling Stone is they write it better than you can, right? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> totally. Totally. Yeah. yeah. So I agree that misinformation and disinformation are one of the, the great threats today. And it's interesting, you know, if you start to, to dig in on some of the cases the, the corporate cases around, you know, disinformation and misinformation. And, you know, it's easy to get lost in the the state actor cases, like what we're seeing right yeah. now with, with Russia and Ukraine. But there's also a, a number of corporate cases where, you know, people launch deliberate disinformation campaigns against companies in order to affect 
share price or competitors. Yeah. There's, there's, there's a publicly traded pharma company that is, is in San Diego where there was um, a, a gentleman who was, who launched a deliberate uh, disinformation campaign to uh, adversely affect their share price. He was like creating fake analyst reports wow. and even whole things, deep fakes. And, and they were, you know, and then, you know, Gosh. distributing them publicly and online. I, I found that one quite interesting. You probably know about the um, the, the BT case, British yep. Telecom, and you know what they experienced around the five G towers that they were building, which you know were having no adverse health effects, but it, there were some disinformation being spread that it was you know causing all sorts of problems. And then the, the actual the, the workers came underneath physical violence from you know protesters against the, the the building of those 5g towers so there's a number of examples for for of companies that have de- had to de- deal with this i think when we when we built this information shield we wanted to do a couple things we wanted to help companies one be able to detect the intentional spread of false information online in a way that previously most were not doing Mm-hmm. And so what that means more specifically is I think every, you know, company these days, or certainly most are monitoring the things that we always monitored, which were of, of course the media and, and then social media and a number of other things. Now what we're able to do with some of the tech and this, this actually ties back to our, our comms tech capability is um you know we're, we're monitoring the the gray web and the dark web yeah in a, in a way that is um, of course automated and then it allows tracking of the, those who are spreading the misinformation disinformation and then in, in, if if it's required you know the intervention whether you're whether yeah. you know you want to do so by combating that disinformation online or you know through other means deplatforming one being one option Exactly. Yeah. Well, that's just, it's fascinating to me. And I could, I could spend an hour on that alone, Jim. So thank you. Um, you can see why Edelman is from information and the, the topics they're working on. One of the top PR agencies in the world, always on the cutting edge of looking at what's affecting clients. And Jim, I really appreciate you talking with us about the future of communication and other topics. So thanks for being on the Crux. Delighted to join you guys. I really appreciate it. Yeah, fascinating. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Crux. Our producer is Boston University student Anna Huynh. This episode and other episodes are made possible by the Boston University College of Communication, or COM as it is known. Located in the heart of downtown Boston, Com is BU's home to the studies of advertising, emerging media, film and TV, journalism, media science, and public relations. At Com, we seek to build understanding among people through better communication. Find out more at www.bu.edu forward slash com.